strangers from distant lands, friends of old. You have been summoned here to listen to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. The Lord of the Rings trilogy stands upon the brink of its 20-year anniversary. None can escape it. You will unite or you will fall. Each race is bound to this fate, this one doom. Bring forth the ring, Frodo. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is The Fellowship of the Ring, where the title of the first book and film gets its name. We round out our RPG party and prepare for the ring to head south. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. And an update on the Patreon right now, we are 15 patrons away at patreon.com slash bomb from reaching our first stretch goal, which will allow us to cover book-only and extended edition-only scenes from The Fellowship of the Ring. Before the denizens of Middle-earth come up with their plan to address the threat of Mordor, we were thinking it is a good time to talk about the Dark Lord Sauron in full. While our ostensible antagonist or big bad in the saga, he doesn't really exist within it as a corporeal character we observe and confront. We learn about Sauron through his proxies and through the chilling effect his shadow casts over the narrative. We've already talked about some of this, Saruman, Barad-dûr, the ring itself, and we'll continue to do so as we continue on our journey. But long before Frodo's adventure, Sauron was a friggin' dude, and we will go over all that now. Sauron is a man of several names, both because of his long time on Middle-earth, as well as the many faces he's worn. Sauron translates to a board in Quenya, and he is the titular Lord of the Rings, the one who doesn't share power. In addition, he's often referred to as the Dark Lord or the Enemy. He was originally named Myron back in the ancient days, and the elves would also go on to name him Gorthar the Cruel during the First Age. Sauron was one of the Maiar, primordial spirits who helped the Valar shape the world. The five wizards we've discussed, including Saruman and Gandalf, are incarnations of the Maiar. The Maiar are usually associated with one of the Valar, and Sauron at the time learned smith work under the Vala Aule the Smith, who was also responsible for the creation of the dwarves. This is where the seed of forging great rings would come from. Other aspects of the Maya are that they are able to freely change form, and they possess some level of immortality. As best I can tell, their spirit dissociates if their body is destroyed. We see that with both Sauron and Gandalf over the course of the saga, though in very different ways. The Balrogs, one of which we'll encounter in a couple weeks here, were also Maiar, or fallen Maiar rather, under Melkor, who would become Morgoth. Morgoth, you say? Yeah, Morgoth. Before there was Sauron, there was Morgoth, the first Dark Lord, the black foe of the world. The Maiar named Melkor translates to who arises in might in Quenya. Melkor rebelled against his creators, the Valar, and when he'd returned to Middle-earth, he set up a kingdom in the north known as Utumno. Sauron would eventually ally with Morgoth, though he still feigned loyalty to the Valar at first. We could probably go on a whole other episode about Morgoth, but I want to give Emily some space to say anything that might be useful for our near-term understanding. 
Yeah, so there is a lot, a lot, a lot to be said about Morgoth and Sauron. It's true. And if you are at all interested in finding out more for yourself, then I definitely recommend checking out the Silmarillion, where he is, spoilers, the big bad. Um, And I would also recommend checking out volume 10 of the History of Middle-Earth series, which is called Morgoth's Ring and deals with, you guessed it, Morgoth. Um, Try as I might, though, I don't really have it within me to summarize the entirety of these two books into something short and sweet enough for a single podcast episode. So to try and boil this down to as short a summary as possible, I'll say this. Both Sauron and Morgoth coveted power, but why they coveted power and to what ends are very different reasons. Um, Morgoth was present at the creation of the Earth and saw how beautiful it was and longed to claim it as his own. But when he was denied that ownership, he wanted to destroy all that he could not trammel. To use the language of the cardinal sins, Morgoth was motivated by avarice and gluttony. He was so consumed by his want and by his lack, his desire turned consumptive and destructive until the abyss that was his spirit was so overcome with darkness there was truly no goodness left within him. No Darth Vader moments for him. Uh, Melkor wanted ownership over all, and if he could not have that, then he wanted destruction of all. Sauron, by contrast, was motivated by his desire for power, but he craved power for a rather more interesting reason. Sauron saw the earth in its beauty and loved that beauty, but wanted to better it and to order it according to his purposes. The cause of his fault was that Sauron loved order and coordination and disliked confusion and wasteful friction. Sauron was, in essence, an efficiency and productivity fetishist. He never quite reached the level of destructiveness that Morgoth did. He was ultimately still motivated by a desire, however corrupted, to do good, which really saves his soul in some ways. This raises the important question, though, of why did Sauron and Morgoth team up? Um, If Morgoth was so depraved and Sauron still somewhat motivated by goodness... Um, Well, really, this gets to the real moral underpinning of so much of Tolkien's writing. And this is also another moment when I'm going to seriously, seriously suggest checking out Dante's Inferno, because that's also a story that toes this moral line. The real reason these two come together is because Morgoth had power, and he was ruthlessly efficient at enacting his plans when he had them. And to Sauron, who, as I've said, loved efficiency, uh, saw that he could not succeed in his own designs without power. And so Morgoth's uh, massive uh, accumulation of uh, power was really, really seductive for Sauron, um, then Myron. Um, And I think it's also important to to point out here that the dynamics between these two um, are really form a lot of the basis of uh, Tolkien's moral and political conversation throughout these books. And Sauron is someone who at one point was interested in doing good, but once he was given all of this power and saw all of the power that he needed to do everything he wanted absolutely to his plans was corrupted. Um, And Morgoth was someone who fell so deeply into his vices that there was truly no redemptive hope for him. um, And he becomes, in essence, the devil. Um, And so even though Sauron is more of a nebulous character throughout the Lord of the Rings trilogy, there is definitely this underlying sense that uh, what he is trying to do and and what he is hoping to do is not the most evil thing in the world. It is unevil, but there is still lying somewhere in the darkness uh, this far greater evil that is Morgoth. By the First Age, Sauron was already the greatest of Morgoth's lieutenants. Though Morgoth would be defeated and taken back to Valinor, Sauron was able to hide away for half a millennium before re-emerging around the year 1000 of the Second Age. This is about the time that the trappings we associate with Sauron start to come into focus. 
he would establish himself in the land of Mordor and begin construction on Barak-dur, which we discussed in our third episode, Riddles in the Dark. Sauron would begin raising armies of orcs and beasts while establishing, let's say, diplomatic ties with the Easterlings and Haradrim. During all this, Sauron was able to disguise himself as an elf friend, the fair Anatar, Lord of Gifts, as he tried to enthrall elves to his cause. One relationship he made was with Celebrimbor, and honestly, most of what I know about Celebrimbor and Sauron I learned from the Shadows of Mordor and Shadows of War games, which are fun but canon-bending stories. The Rings of Power would then be forged, including the One Ring. But the elves were wiser to Sauron's manipulations than he thought, and they were able to hide away the three elven rings before they could fall under the dominion of Sauron's. The dwarves also proved resistant to becoming Sauron's thralls, though his malice did bear a lust for gold in the race of dwarves. Men, as Elrond would say, are weak, and they fell fairly easily to the ring deception. In 1600 of the Second Age, Barak-dur had been completed, and this is where Sauron's official reign as Dark Lord basically begins. He conquered much of Middle-earth, including far into the north and west of the continent. This first advance would eventually be defeated by elves and Numenorians in what is known as the War of the Elves and Sauron. Think of a better name next time, please. In this time, Eregion and Eriador, or Eriador, sorry, the regions we spend most of the fellowship in, were decimated, though Sauron was able to retreat back to Mordor with diminished forces. Sauron would re regain full power at the end of the Second Age. At this time, he was called back to Numenor as a prisoner, but there he used his immense charisma and political know-how and was able to swing much of the court into his favor. For the men who had been gifted, through their ability to die, the right to live free of the fate of the earth, death was ever-present and something they longed to best. Sauron, knowing this, ensnared them into the worship of Morgoth by promising them a cure for death in return. Once they had become worshippers of Morgoth, Sauron tried to convince the men of Numenor to fight Valinor and the Valar. Eru Iluvatar here makes one of his rare direct interventions into the daily life of Arda by sending a great wave to drown Numenor. In creating this wave, he also made the earth round rather than flat and separated Amon and Valinor from the earth, making it possible to access Amon only by elven ships. The, falling and, the fall and sinking of Numenor is recounted in the Silmarillion in the story called Akalabeth. All that's to say, Sauron again had to take the ring and retreat back to Mordor to rebuild his body, no longer being able to appear fair to others. This basically will take us to the last alliance of the men and elves, including the battle on Mount Doom and the losing of the run ring by Isildur on the Gladden Fields, all stuff we've covered in our prologue episode to start this adventure. There is, however, Sauron's time as the Necromancer, which is discussed in the council scene in the book and gets a fair amount of screen time in the Hobbit films. In the year 1050 of the Third Age, the spirit of Sauron took up refuge in a fortress in the southern part of Mirkwood, Dol Guldur, which means Hill of Sorcery. This is about the time that the Astari, or wizards, were arriving in Middle-earth. We'd learned that the Nazgul would come forth again around the Third Age, year 1300. Around 2063 is when Gandalf would begin investigating what was going on in Dol Guldur, though Sauron would flee before he could be discovered and would return about 400 years later. This also coincides with about when Smeagol discovered the ring. 
2850 of the Third Age would bring Gandalf back to Dol Guldur, and this time he would discover Sauron there. With the help of the White Council, they were able to force Sauron from Dol Guldur in 2941, and he would flee back to the east. Ten years later, Sauron would officially come forward to declare his war on Middle-earth, kicking off the War of the Ring, which is what we are covering over these films. That's a lot, but I got one last non-Lord of the Ring things to mention. There is a Marvel Comics villain whose name is Sauron, a vampire pterodactyl man who mainly fights against the X-Men. He's definitely not one of the elite Marvel antagonists, though anyone who spends time poisoning their brain on Twitter has probably seen the most famous panel, including Sauron. In it, Spider-Man is questioning, why all this, with all this money and knowledge, why Sauron is turning people into dinosaurs instead of, like, curing cancer, to which Sauron replies, I don't want to cure cancer. I want to turn people into dinosaurs. I think we all know who should be the villain of the next Spider-Man movie, right? <laughs> Strangers from distant lands, friends of old, you've been summoned here to answer the threat of Mordor. Middle-earth stands upon the brink of destruction. None can escape it. You will unite or you will fall. Each race is bound to this fate, this one doom. Okay, it's probably a cheat to lift the quote that we used to introduce our podcast now, but hey, there really is no better way to set up this segment. We have arrived at the Council of Elrond, where gathered is the Middle-Earth Dream Blunt Rotation. <laughs> Representatives from the elves, dwarves, and men have been assembled to determine what is to be done about this Sauron fella. Elrond, our keynote speaker, asks Frodo to bring forth the ring, and a hush falls over the crowd. The ring, a legend long forgotten, has jumped out of myth and landed right in front of them. So it is true, whispers Boromir, much to Aragorn's chagrin. As the camera pans to each attendee's face, we can barely hear the ring trying to speak to each of them. Come on, take me, Sauron whispers to each. I'm right frickin' here. Time for our good friend Boromir to take the podium, as played by the wonderful Sean Bean, as we discussed in our previous episode. It is a gift. A gift to the foes of Mordor, he implores. His question seems cromulent enough. Why not use the ring? Long have the people of Gondor been on the front line against the Dark Lord, so why not let him take it back to the White City so it can be used against him? Well, that's the problem, chides Strider. It only answers to the Dark Lord, and thus can only result in the doom of all. Oh yeah? replies Boromir. What does this frigging guy know about it? <laughs> this is no mere frigging guy, asserts Link. I, I mean Legolas. This guy is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. Isildur's heir and, right, and the rightful heir to the Gondorian throne. Boromir, son of the steward, scoffs at this. Gondor has no king. Gondor needs no king. While all this is going on, realization is settling in for Frodo. We got a taste of Aragorn's heritage when chatting with Arwen over the shards of Narsil, but now our hobbit friends are becoming aware of who exactly is the stranger from the north. And as is consistent with these films' characterization of Aragorn, Vigo plays this entire bit with a self-doubt on his face, worrying if Isildur's weakness flows through his veins. Lord Elrond lays down the truth of the matter. The ring must be destroyed, despite Boromir's objections. Gimli gets his first real moment in the series here. What are we waiting for? As he brings his axe down on the ring only for the axe to shatter and the dwarf to be blown back. 
Frodo seems to be in physical pain after the attempted hack job. The ring cannot be destroyed by any craft we here possess, Elrond explains. This fucker was made in Mount Doom, and only there can it be unfucked. And one of the council's lucky attendants will have to do it. Folly, cries Boromir. I hope you have your iconic meme phaser set to stun folks, because he's about to say the line. One does not simply walk into Mordor. The air is poison, the ground is ash, and evil does not sleep behind the walls of Mordor, Boromir relays with despair. Legolas interjects again, saying they gotta do what Elrond says, and Gimli objects to Legolas, implying the elf means to take it for himself. The entire council then erupts into bickering and argument. Gimli is shouting, never trust an elf, while Gandalf and Boromir start going at each other too. This, of course, is exactly what the ring thrives on. Discord, greed, and dividing those who would stand against Sauron. We get to watch this heated debate from the ring's point of view, as the reflection of the council can be seen consumed by flames in the ring's reflection. But then a voice, a tiny yet determined voice, rings out. I will take it, says Frodo Baggins, as a sad smile reaches Gandalf's face. Meanwhile, all the big people stand in awe of the halfling, showing his courage exceeds his stature. And I think you all know what comes next, which I'll accept your thanks or apologies for playing this clip in full. I will help you bear this burden, Frodo Baggins, as long as it is yours to bear. If by my life or death, I can protect you. I will. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And my axe. Carry the face of his all, little one. If this is indeed the will of the council, then Gondor will see it done. Hey! Mr. Frodo's not going anywhere without me. No, indeed, it is hardly possible to separate you even when he is summoned to a secret council and you are not. Wait! We're coming too! Have to send us all tied up in a sack to stop it. Anyway, you need people of intelligence on this sort of mission. Quest. Thank you. Well, that rules you out, Nick. Nine companions. So be it. You shall be the Fellowship of the Ring. Right. Where are we going? Elrond and Gandalf seem very pleased by this development. Fellowship and subterfuge is how they defeat Sauron, destroying the ring rather than using it. We get a lovely shot of our nine companions, nine perhaps to answer the nine of the Nazgul. The newly established Fellowship of the Ring prepares to set out. We see Boromir and Legolas saddling the horses along with Merry and Pippin, before cutting back to Frodo's goodbye to Bilbo. It's dangerous to go alone. Take this. (laughs) <laughs> he offers him the elven dagger, Sting, which, grow, which glows blue when orcs are around, and a shiny shirt made of mithril, which is light as a feather, but as hard as dragon scales. Frodo looks to put on his new wares, which ends up revealing to Bilbo the ring hanging from his neck. My old ring, Bilbo laments. Maybe I could hold it one last time? 
Frodo denies him, and Bilbo goes Gollum mode. A sickness appears in his face as he lunges at his nephew. The madness fades, and Bilbo is overly apologetic for the burden he's laid at Frodo's feet. And with that, our fellowship sets out from Rivendale. Woohoo. So just to kick off our story analysis here, I just want to highlight that this is kind of one of those fuck yeah moments of the entire trilogy. This is a scene everyone remembers, full of memorable dialogue and shots and score, birthplace of several memes. It's got to be one of the most iconic film scenes of the century, down to the shot of the nine members of the Fellowship all assembled. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is also one of these really brilliant scenes at the start of this film trilogy because it is, in essence, the whole series in microcosm. Um, I think like it, it does this really beautiful job of burying the the sort of like high fantasy epic quest element of Lord of the Rings with some of the easy breezy humor, like like Pippin's joke about so where are we going? Um, and you know, I think with the way that it's written, um, and this isn't meant to be a knock on the the screenwriters, I think with the way that it's written, it could have very easily fallen flat or come across as hokey or uh, insufficiently earnest or insufficiently or or not insufficiently but too far up its own ass um, and it doesn't because it's this this kind of scene of this perfect marriage between excellent acting and um, quite earnest script writing and uh, like really thoughtful cinematography and scenic and set and lighting and costume design and it all comes together into this like you say, this incredibly iconic fuck yeah scene. Um, and it, it is really, I think it sets the standard for all of the coming scenes throughout the next two and a half films, but it also kind of acts as this like thesis statement, both production-wise and narratively, for the rest of the film. Yeah, it's kind of not foreshadowing maybe, but a lot of this story is about people coming together, whether it's Gondor and Rohan or, you know, the members of the Fellowship. And we kind of see that writ small here. We see just a small group of people come together to, you know, take on the Dark Lord in their own way, because obviously it's a stealth mission to destroy the ring. But as we go on uh, through the rest of the saga, it's all about, you know, who's going to join our side or who's going to form these bonds of fellowship, whether it's Merry and Pippin with the Ents, um, you know, the three hunters with the kingdom of Rohan, uh, reconciling, you know, the kingdom of Rohan between um, Eomer and his Rohirrim and Theoden, all of that stuff. A lot of this is about bringing people together in the face of evil. And we kind of see that in its most smallest iteration here, or maybe it gets a little bit smaller back when Merry and Pippin join in the Shire. But here we kind of start seeing how that's kind of expanding outwards as the story goes on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's one of these things where um, it, you get so many kind of divergent, um, like both character and, and like, I guess, like race slash species uh, uh, threads that come together here. Um, but it comes together in like a, a really kind of well-formed and like well-cohered uh, way. And like, I think there are a lot of... Um, 
I mean, I don't want to dunk too hard on on the MCU because I know you love the MCU. Um, but <laughs> I, it, it kind of makes me think of some of the Avengers movies, the more recent ones, where you get um, I, it's that one shot that haunts me of uh, all of the women, um, all of their women in their tight bodysuits who are staring at some indeterminate point off in the distance. Um, and that to me, that shot always sticks out to me because it is an attempt to like show, I guess, um, like, you know, women power, girl power, but also like the diversity of all of the women that they have, but it doesn't cohere for me. Um, and, and the reason it doesn't cohere is because they've got all of these different types of like superheroes coming together, but there's not really this unified purpose. And there's not really this like aesthetic and narrative cohesion in that, that, that sort of shot, that, that sequence, um, that really fulfills anything. Whereas with, this with the Council of Elrond, you're really getting this sort of unified purpose, not just in the narrative sense of okay, now we know, now we need to go destroy the ring, but it all comes together into this like, and we'll talk about this more in and and the the sort of production value section. But like, uh, you know, there is this feeling of like the the kind of softness, the earth tones. Everybody's kind of going back to basics. Um, the elves and the dwarves are fighting because the elves and the dwarves have always fought, and we as viewers obviously don't know that because we don't have this immense amount of context from from the film. But just from the interaction between uh, Gimli and Legolas, which is all of like three lines, we get this immense sense of history and like um, acrimony built in, um, and we still see that this 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 thing this this quest to destroy the ring is so significant that even this long standing um enmity is is uh, something that they can overcome in pursuit of this thing. And that like allows this wider sense of um, cohesion. And I don't want to say like world building, because I think that has kind of like a tainted meaning, but like it makes this world seem so much bigger for how small the scene actually is. Oh yeah. I think it alludes to uh, like thousands of years of history between long seated, you know, animosity perhaps between the dwarves and elves and it doesn't have to explain any of that. Um, they do explain quite a bit of it in the books. Um, but like, you know, just the vague hints we get opens up the world in a way that, um, you know, I don't really know how to put it, but it just, it's just a very little bit that makes you wanting more, that makes us, you know, love the scene, that makes us want to become obsessed with the Lord of the Rings and do a podcast about it um, because you feel like this is all very lived in. And, you know, feel free to dunk on the MCU as much as you want. Um, I admit it is a moral failing of mine how much I like them. And I do think that scene you're referring to is really clunky, especially because aside from, I think, Gamora and Mantis, and Gamora is a time-displaced Gamora who has not met the Guardians of the Galaxy, none of those women characters actually have any real relationships or rapport with each other. They just all kind of lined up somehow <laughs> at that time to, you know, fight Thanos or whatever they were doing, so... Um, I do think that that is definitely clunkier, whereas this feels much more organic and much more earnest in a way that feels, you know, invigorating or uplifting. Yeah, it has the kind of like, you know, bottle episodes and TV shows like it, this kind of feels like the the, the movie's bottle episode because um, you get I mean, there is an enormous amount of plot um, and exposition work going on in these scenes. And I like I really don't want to discount that because it is quite heavy hitting. But you're also getting an enormous amount of character development at the same time. And like, I don't mean to imply that like plot always comes at the cost of character development because that's simply not true. But but I think there is a tendency that to, to, to have scenes like this that are plot heavy where the characters kind of melt into the background and exist solely to like 
push the narrative forward without any sort of like sense of like internal character logic. And you really don't get that in the scene at all. Like um, Gimli standing up to try and take out the ring with his um, axe is to me functionally the same thing as in um, Empire when uh, the, the the swishy sidey doors open um, in front of Han and Leia and there's Darth Vader and Han immediately takes out his his blaster and tries to gun down the greatest villain of all time. That is an immense amount of um, uh, of character development in just this tiny, tiny action that could otherwise be kind of hand waved away as oh look at these morons it really says a, a huge amount about like the the like um uh, kind of like any nobility but also courage and and sort of uh, uh self-sacrificial nature of these characters and that is really in this in this scene it is an incredibly minor element of the scene because there are all these other massive character elements that are being woven in so beautifully to 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 the like um you know the warp and weft of this text yeah, you, because of like the, you know, importance of this actual in-universe meeting of all these peoples, um, you kind of need like Legolas and Gimli to be ambassadors of their, if not at least their, you know, like tribes or the groups where they specifically reside, if not for their entire race. And, you know, we've only spent a couple minutes with Boromir pre- previous to the scene. Um, Aragorn gets a whole new kind of lair added to his character when we get a little more explicit about his heritage and being a Sealdor's heir. And then, you know, Gandalf was kind of the kindly old wizard who disappeared for a while. Um, we get to see kind of Elrond's importance in this world as kind of a leader that basically all leaders of other peoples will look up to. There's just so much heavy lifting happening, but it feels still light and even breezy, like you say, because there are is a good mix of jokes. Um, there is just it's just so well done you can like go on forever of all the little choices and definitely if they adapted the fellowship of the ring or the lord of the rings as a tv series now i would want this scene to just be one episode to pull off that bottle episode you're talking about yeah no so this is really interesting to me because i'm I'm just thinking about this now because i think like a lot of the big quote unquote reveals um in this scene because the scene uh, you know has the like cultural kind of heft weightiness that it does um, all of the kind of reveals that exist in the scene were, were kind of not spoiled for me but like I knew them all already I knew that Aragorn was the king um, I knew that Frodo would take the the, the ring to to I was about to say to Rivendell to, to Mount Doom <laughs> um, all of these things were things that I was aware of but like I'm, I'm interested for you as like someone who you know saw these films in, in their first run like what was this what was the scene like for you like seeing it for the first time um well, let's see. I mean, it was definitely a shock. Um, I definitely was shocked that they got a bunch of like extras for the scene that don't do anything and just kind of look off dissociatingly <laughs> off into the distance. So that kind of stood out. Um, but yeah, it just it just felt like an avalanche of sorts um, of revelations. And, you know, some of this stuff I had kind of figured out, like we find out Aragorn's a Sealdor's heir in the previous scene, but they don't really like, you know, tie a bow on it to like yell at the audience. Um we get, you know, to see uh, Boromir uh, really here. And, you know, I talked about all the baggage I have with Sean Bean, uh, good baggage, but like all the things that are playing in my minds. This is the guy who's traditionally a bad guy who traditionally dies. All that stuff is coming forth. This is the first mention we get of the ring must be 
can only be destroyed in Mordor, which, you know, looking back on it, I probably should have figured that out watching the first, you know, half of this movie. But, you know, it's like, oh, okay. So they have to go into the heart of evil, the heart of darkness uh, to destroy this one ring. And then obviously getting just getting the character in tradition introduction, sorry, with Gemel, uh, Gemel, Gemelis, uh, Gimli <laughs> and Legolas, uh, Gimli, who, you know, a big fan of the actor, or at least his acting, uh, <laughs> John Reese davies uh, cause he was a major part of the Indiana Jones, uh, trilogy and Legolas who had just kind of emerged on, um, on the scene around this time, uh, with the Pirates of the Caribbean films. Uh, so it was just like, there was so much happening in the scene. There's new characters, a lot of new information that's going to affect the end game of the story. Um, there's revelations about characters we already knew and, you know, had established some kind of rapport with. So it's just like, like I said, I think an avalanche is the best word I can describe because I feel like so much of the world built, and again, I'm not trying to use world building as a negative phrase, but so much of what we need to know about the rest of the story really comes forth here. And something we'll talk about in the token token book section is they take various parts, like the whole thing about the ring needing to be destroyed um, in Mordor is actually mentioned by Gandalf very early in the books, but they actually moved it here. And I think that works to really escalate both the importance of like all the knowledge that's being conveyed at the scene, but also clearly setting a sort of end game and goal over the course of the next two and a half movies. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. I think one of the things that um, as I was kind of sitting around thinking about the scene um, and prep for for this episode is it's hard for me to like disentangle it from its like um, its cultural status. But I, I think in each subsequent viewing, I think I get a little bit better at it, at like kind of putting aside waiting for Sean Bean to to say, you know, one does not simply walk into Mordor um, and, and sort of trying to get a little bit more into like the, the mindset of the 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 film um i guess or the story um and one of the things that i always find interesting is that um there there's this sort of like i don't i don't know how to put this but there there's this sort of like uh, franticness and movement because like as you like as you say like there are a lot of like guys that are literally like the like the meme guy figwit or whatever um <laughs> the the extra who's just like staring off into the distance like even though they're not really doing a whole bunch of things there's a lot of movement in this scene um and you know as i sit here and and watch it when i'm thinking with like my meme brain on or whatever like i'm ignoring all of that because i'm like okay say the line bart um but when i'm like sitting and watching it and my like okay there's no like meta narrative to any of this you're just watching it because you're genuinely interested will frodo succeed yada 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 like there's a lot of like franticness in this scene and that that to me kind of feels like now i think this is maybe a, a sign of um my my age here um but uh, in, I want to say it was 2010, um, when there was a lot of that. Uh, so in in the run-up to and, and sort of uh, mess around uh, the Arab Spring, uh, there was like a lot of this like franticness over Libya. Um, and, um, you know, God bless Hillary Clinton for saber rattling to death over that. Um, but there, there kind of felt like to, to the people who are kind of my age who like missed broadly the run up to the Iraq war, but we're kind of like sitting watching this going, okay, we've heard about the Iraq war. Like there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of movement. I'm being told by like the secretary of state or whatever that like, it's an absolute moral imperative that we go in and bomb all of these places and that we oust these dictators or whatever, but I can't keep track of the moving pieces. 
and this scene <laughs> and like I'm sorry this is such like an out of pocket like comparison but this scene feels like that to me where like as I'm sitting watching it and um, even when I have taken my Adderall so I'm like totally medicated and allegedly my brain is like totally focused on what it's doing I'm still trying to keep track of everything that's going on and like all of the potential factors that could fail. Like, what if this, like, shit between um, Legolas and Gimli and the dwarves and the elves falls through? Like, what if that's going to be a problem? Or, like, you know, obviously Boromir kind of hypes up his, like, potential villain status quite a bit. But, like, you also look at Aragorn not looking the most confident he's ever looked. And my brain is going when I'm watching this scene, oh my God, what if he fucks up? Like, he's meant to be the guy in charge. What if he fucks up? Um, And I think it is this kind of, brilliance of this scene that there's this like frantic and erratic nature to it juxtaposed against like the quiet kind of decaying calm quietude I guess of of Rivendell that that like contrast really and it it just I don't like I I can't articulate it well but it just works for me yeah it does break out into just like all out chaos um at a certain point in a way that I don't think it does in the books really Uh, and um, it feels like look at all these spinning plates and they're they're all just going to topple over right here. <laughs> like it feels yeah. like, you know, this could have very easily gone a very sour direction if, you know, it, the film wants us to attribute it to Frodo kind of stepping up and kind of putting everyone in their place or at least being like so in awe of his courage and his willingness to do this that it kind of makes everyone a little bit more humble or to like reflect a little bit about what they were just bickering about. But it's literally like, the line we're going to get uh, later on with from Galadriel is like the quest hangs on or balances on the edge of a knife. And it really feels like this scene is the manifestation of that, that this could have really easily gone poorly because so many different people are bringing so many different baggages to this. And not only just their own personal baggage, but in the case of, say, you know, Gimli and Legolas, perhaps the burden of representing their race and the conflicts between their races, between dwarves and elves, Um, Aragorn basically, you know, carrying the banner for the Dunedain here and, you know, all the weight that uh, is on him because of his legacy and his heritage and all that. So this very easily could have gone sideways. And I think I really appreciate it, even though it's a little bit like out of the office with the smirks that Gandalf and (laughs) Elrond are shooting at each other. Um, I do get like them being like overjoyed that despite what just happened here in the end, they were able to at least coalesce around this idea of the fellowship, even if it won't hold for, you know, ever it's what they needed to see to see that there is some kind of hope, even if it was, you know, a fool's hope. Yeah. Oh, this is really interesting because I think Gandalf is, uh, you know, I, I obviously have my slightly wild takes on, on Gandalf, but um, I think Gandalf is a really interesting and kind of underrated element in this scene. Um, and I was kind of laughing during your your recap because you say that when uh, Frodo says, I will take the ring, um, Gandalf looks at him with, with like a smile. Um, and that is so interesting to me because um, I've never read that as a smile before. I have read that as him like grimacing in pain, like, oh shit, like this is, this is, this is either like a problem and Frodo's just thrown himself into something that he can now never come back from and should have thought about that and not something where he's like kind of moved to like, you know, whether like tepid joy or like, uh, like kind of like wry smiling, not something where he's smiling. And it was so interesting to hear that like different take on it because I've just never considered it before. Yeah, and I don't think your reading is necessarily wrong, and I'm not saying my reading is specifically right. I think it is it is a sort of resignation, and it's definitely a sadness. I mean, whatever is happening with the corners of Ian McKellen's mouth, his eyes are definitely saddened. And I think it's just like, 
the way I read it is Gandalf is like, this is definitely the best option to have the Hobbit uh, take the ring uh, because we've already seen between Bilbo and Frodo that they seem to be a little more resistant to its charm, so to speak. And it doesn't possess any great power like it would, say, in the hands of someone like Boromir or Aragorn or Legolas. So that's how I read it. But I'm now fascinated by your take that, you know, it's something else entirely. But it, it, that's what, you know, I kind of love. And we talk about how Ian McKellen really makes Gandalf be something more in these films. And I think that's the sort of acting that you get when you get an actor of his caliber. Yeah, it's this incredible, like, uh, I guess, multidimensionality, I guess is the word. Um, and you're getting it from so many of of um, the the actors in this scene. Um, and, and um, oh, man, why was it that I was reading? I was reading it somewhere, but it shocked the hell out of me that this is Orlando Bloom's first role out of um, drama school because he does not come across Like, you know, we all joke about Legolas being a himbo and not really saying all of that much except to say, like, vaguely spooky poetic stuff. But he kind of has um, that really excellent kind of, like, elven gravitas there where, you know, I I am now much older than he is in in when he was filming these. And I don't look at him and think, oh, yeah, that's a 20-year-old. I think, yeah, yeah, he's probably about 2,000 years old. No questions asked. You know what I mean? Like, there, there is that real, like, sense of, like, intensity from all of these actors. Yeah, I, I've i said it before, Legolas, at least of the Fellowship, is my favorite characters, and it's mostly for, you know, kick-ass, arrow-shooty stuff, not for any, like, <laughs> characterization or deep pathos, but he just, he is that character to me, for lack of a better word, and, I mean, it's very easy to say that, considering I've seen him three, I guess, five times on film as that character, but, like, there is no, like, rookie, like, shade on this guy like he knows what he's doing and i know i mentioned the pirates of the caribbean movies were coming out around this time he had shot all of the lord of the rings before he was playing um will turner i believe was his name in the pirates movies so this really is just an outstanding debut even if again it's not like the meatiest role in terms of a character arc or seeing like a significant change in the character but everything he says and he has some of the it's both the most fun and goofiest dialogue in the entire series, but he just like delivers it all just so earnestly and so full of emotion that, yes, I really do believe the whips of their masters are behind the Urukai as they're <laughs> trudging along the gap of Rohan. Like all that stuff still works, even though if anyone said that at all in any other context, I'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, no, that's totally true. Cause I think he's interesting for me because, um, I think in terms of like goofy unhelpfulness for, for dialogue, uh, he and Gandalf are basically even in my mind, like they both just say things that has no merit, no value is completely unhelpful for anybody involved. Um, and, and, uh, Legolas to me, Orlando Bloom to me, sells it way better because I never go uh, like, okay, like, why, why are you saying this? This is totally unhelpful. Like, please stop talking. And um, whereas with a lot of Gandalf's lines, I'm like, dude, shut up. Like, this is so unhelpful right now. And I, I think as just like Orlando Bloom being an elf, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I never in when I'm playing like, um, Zelda games, I never question, well, I guess Blink only really talks in Breath of the Wild, but I like never question like the goofy shit that he says because I'm like, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, and it's totally <laughs> that same energy. Yeah. And you're listening to this after we just released our Boromir episode. And as we're setting the precedent, we're not going to do like these character dives within our recap episodes, at least for the main fellowship members and some other cast members, because 
as you'll hear from the Boromir episode, we can basically go two hours on all of these characters. And Boromir is the one that that dies in the first movie. So we have even more. So both Legolas and Gimli, they're going to get their own episodes uh, coming up uh, throughout the course of our coverage. We're probably going to hit Gimli uh, when we get to Moria in the Fellowship. And then Legolas, as well as the rest of the Fellowship, will start picking off with the Two Towers and Return of the King. Yeah, um, and I'm really excited for these as well because it's going to let us get into a lot of the 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 kind of like um, like social and like ra- racial. I guess that's like such a weird way to say that now, but like the racial histories of all of these characters and like talking in more depth about why the elves and the dwarves uh, have this animosity mm-hmm. or like what it means that like Gimli and Legolas hang out together forever um, after the end of the war. Um, but before we get there, um, there is one thing that I like feel morally um, and ethically compelled to note, which is that lots and lots and lots of um, Tolkien nerds are going to, like pretentious Tolkien nerds, will get mad at either this movie or other fans for saying the name of Gimli's father, Gloin, um, as Gloin. Um, and I am here to tell you uh, officially, in, in an official capacity as someone who reads too much, um, if you pronounce it like Gloin, as in Gloin like coin, uh, you are totally correct if you pronounce it as like glowing like blown in the wind you're also totally correct um tolkien pronounced it a million different ways throughout his life um and um scholars of nordic linguistics which is like uh, norse languages are what the languages of the dwarves um are based off of and um, also can't agree on what the like correct pronunciation of it is and uh, scholars of tolkien linguistics also can't agree. So if you are talking about this movie and some high and mighty like book fan uh, tries to look down their nose at you for saying Gloin instead of Gloin or whatever, tell them to roundly fuck off. <laughs> wow, that must just be part of the legacy that Lord of the Rings has left on fantasy because George R.R. R. Martin also often mispronounces or pronounces differently his own proper <laughs> nouns and names. So uh, it just must be a thing of the genre. Uh, one thing I like to highlight about Gimli here, and this is just like, the littlest thing is that whenever when he's spouting never trust an elf at the council, you can just see this little bit of spittle on John Reese Davies' <laughs> mouth, which I just love because he's literally spitting these words of hate. Um, and it's just something I absolutely love. It's really brilliant. Um, uh, Gimli in the books is not quite so like aggressive. Um, and I often joke, and maybe it is a bit horrible of me to joke this because um, John Reese Davies, the actor, has... Uh, truly evil politics um, and does and votes for and sports truly truly evil things um but i always joke whenever um we watch this film that the line about never trust an elf uh was not in fact in there um in the original script and that they brought in john reese davis as their official uh racism consultant to ensure that they were getting it with the right level of vitriol (laughs) yeah yeah john reese davies he's great as sala in the indie movies bad as a person in the real world Yeah, we're doing like death of the actor here. (laughs) We're going to fast forward past the council scene for a bit and talk about Frodo's goodbye to Bilbo and the items he picks up in the process. The first is Sting. So Sting was forged in the First Age, an elven short sword that Bilbo discovered in a troll horde on the journey to Erebor. This would be depicted in the Hobbit films. Its most iconic feature is that it glows blue and orcs are around, Technically, this is also true of Gandalf's elven sword Glamdring and Orcrist, which Thorin wields in those Hobbit movies, but for the films, it's just Sting that has this blue glowing feature. 
Bilbo gave this blade a name when fighting off spiders in Mirkwood, again on his journey to the Lonely Mountain. Presumably, we will get to that scene in The Desolation of Smog at some point. Being elven made, Gollum has a special aversion to it, which helps explain how Bilbo and later Frodo would be able to subdue him for a time, and I assume that elven DNA makes it a bane to all dark forces, as Shelob also seems to take extra damage from it. The film design is supposed to resemble a leaf, as do, as do much of the elven designs in these films. The, side of the, blade, the sides of the blade are curved slightly with the spiral design, which I believe borrows from a Tolkien description. And not from Tolkien's description is a little Easter egg inscription in Sindarin. I'm going to try to say this, um, even though I'm going to butcher it. Magnas ein estar nin dagnir in ingil im, which is, Sting is my name, I am the spider's bane. The inscription is not from the text, and it doesn't appear in the Hobbit films uh, with that inscription on it, so my headcanon is that Bilbo likely added it in between the stories of the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, probably with the help of an elfish myth. The other item that uh, Frodo picks up is this shiny shirt made of mithril, which means gray glitter. Uh, it is precious, lightweight, but a strong metal mined by the dwarves in Khazad-dûm, and it has the value of, or ten times the value of gold. I'm going to read a quote here from Gandalf, which is from the Fellowship of the Ring book, and he says, Mithril, all folk desired it. It could be beaten like copper and polished like glass, and the dwarves could make of it a metal, light and yet harder than tempered steel. Its beauty was like that, like... Its beauty was like to that of common silver, but the beauty of Mithril did not tarnish or grow dim. Elves, in, a, in opposition, used it for jewelry instead of armor. And it is also implied that the dwarven lust for Mithril in Moria is what led to awakening Durin's bane, the Balrog, by delving too greedily and deeply, as they say. Yes, and I am here going to come to the dwarves' defense, which is something I rarely do, and, and say that it is maybe not entirely the dwarves' fault that they had to delve that deeply, because maybe the elves should have stopped asking for so much bling and forcing the dwarves to uh, go digging that deep. Um, and that is obviously like a completely deranged market explanation for uh, what is not actually a climate change allegory, but could be seen as a climate change allegory. But nonetheless, fuck the elves, it's not the dwarves' fault. <laughs> And uh, according to the Legendarium, much of the Mithril in Moria would fall to the orcs who took it over, who then pledged it to Sauron as tribute, which leads to something weird that I want Emily to talk about here. <laughs> yeah, so this is another one of these like weird little tidbits of information, like uh, Sauron only taking black horses from uh, the Rohirrim, that like... It, it really raises more questions that, than it answers um, and raises weirder questions than anyone should have ever thought to ask. But um, almost all of the Mithril in Middle-earth is um, at the time of the Fellowship of the Ring, um, 3019 of the Third Age, in Sauron's possession. And he hoards it and tries to, to, tries to get as much of it as he can. But we never see orcs wielding Mithril armor or Mithril weapons, and we never see very much made out of Mithril. Um, which is strange given that he has so much of it and it's, it's this incredibly useful and powerful material, which to me leads to the only possible conclusion, that, which is that Sauron was making himself a Mithril zoot suit. God, I, ever since you put this uh, line in our show notes, I've been thinking a lot about it. 
And I swear by the end of this podcast, I will come up with a headcanon answer about what Sauron's been doing with all that Mithril. Because <laughs> it's really going to like weigh on my mind now. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. <laughs> and of course, Mithril is what comprises Frodo's shiny shirt that he gets from Bilbo. Um, it was gifted to Bilbo by Thorin Oakenshield after Smog was expelled from the Lonely Mountain. Uh, Bilbo donated to a museum in the Shire, the Matham House, but took it back. Uh, but took it back uh, sometime afterwards. And I wish I had Emily's sound clip of "This belongs in a museum" that she used in one of our <laughs> previous episodes. Um, the shiny shirt or the mithril. Uh, armor would end up saving Frodo's life in Moria when a cave troll uh, sticks him with a spear, one that would skewer a wild boar, but Frodo was left untouched. And the other important cinematic moment with the shiny shirt is that it would be taken from him at Kirith Ungol and used by the mouth of Sauron in the extended edition scene when she, he's trying to bait Aragorn and convince him that Frodo has demised. And just from a matter of stakes or... Um, for the movie, um, having Frodo lose his invincibility before he has to trek across Mordor just kind of makes sense. Um, I don't know how other to put it, but you don't want him, you know, going across the fields of Gorgoroth knowing that he has uh, an impenetrable, uh, you know, male underneath his shirt. So I, I like that little bit. Uh, yeah, literally losing that. his plot armor. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Um, other uses of Mithril we'll see are um, it is it is used in the one of the three Elven Rings, Nenya. It is one of the metals that constitutes it. Also, helmets of the guards of the Citadel, um, those who protect uh, Minas Tirith, um, wear helmets made of mithril, and it's supposedly an heirloom of better days and better times. And then the other use we'll see is Ethelden, which translates to Star Moon, and this is using mithril to make a type of inlay used for arches and gateways, which we'll see very soon when we get to the doors of Moria and the elven gate that protects it. And then lastly, mithril has also made its way out of the Lord of the Rings and into the fantasy genre as a whole. It has become a common name that shows up in other fantasy books and definitely, definitely video games like Elder Scrolls and Dungeons and Dragons. I mostly know of it from Final Fantasy. It's a class of armor and weapon you usually get kind of early on in the game. Like they're better than iron weapons and iron armor, but not as strong as whatever else that the game lays out for you in latter parts of the game. So we'll go ahead and uh, pivot over to our cinematography and score section of this episode. Uh, I think Emily talked about this a little bit, but I'll let her do it again. Um, the intro shots we get of these characters, especially Legolas, is very fascinating to me. Yeah, so so I went through like the like mechanics of lighting um, and um, old Hollywood lighting of women in uh, in our last. Uh, plot-based episode, which was episode 10. Um, and I'm not going to go through it all again, but I just want to keep pointing out here um, that almost all of the elves are shot this way with this like lovely uh, uh, light right in their eye to give them a bit of a twinkle. All of their skin looks very soft and um, not to make them featureless, but like it softens out their features. So there's not that same harshness. Um, Elrond, I will know, is actually one of the few exceptions to this. Um, but um, 
in terms of how the lighting is done in this scene in particular, there is like a, a very strong emphasis on on having that kind of haziness, that blurriness, that dreamlike feeling. Um, and no doubt this is um, uh, like enhanced in some ways through like uh, post-production elements. But like, I, I feel like it is very necessary to highlight the like um, clever and good work of the lighting designers in this scene. Because I feel like lighting designers in general are never given as much credit as they are due. Oh, I agree with that. I already munch, uh, mentioned all the dead-eyed smokes that are in the scene that just kind of <laughs> fill out the scene. Uh, but one uh, feature I do love about the scene is that they do these great close-ups on everyone's face as they're looking at each other or looking at the ring, Aragorn looking at Boromir, all of them looking at the ring when Frodo uh, takes it out and puts it on the little pedestal in the middle. It almost creates a detective or mystery film kind of sense to me, just the way that everyone's kind of looking around. They don't know who to trust. Um, they don't know, you know, whether this ring is the actual ring. I mean, they do, but all this stuff, it just adds a level of suspense and tension that I usually think of mystery films or like the classic shot of a dog with its eyes darting left to right, like suspicious of everyone around him. And that's kind of what I get a sense from these shots. And then there's also a very uh, famous shot when Gimli attacks the ring with his axe. Uh, we see the axe come down and the axe break, but we get a flash of the great eye on screen. And then we see Frodo like kind of grimace. And it's, I don't even know how to describe the cuts here because it almost looks like the DVD or the streaming glitches um, <laughs> in a way that it's kind of zooming in and flashing at you all within the matter of like a second. Um, but it's something that definitely stands out and definitely like really emphasizes that when Gimli made this attempt on the ring, it kind of hurt Frodo in some kind of fashion. And then uh, the last shot I want to mention specifically here is the shot of everyone fighting in the ring. One thing we're going to talk about next episode is that they had an extra giant version of the ring um, to use for certain shots. Um, and it is used in this shot as well, uh, where, uh, they have a giant version of the ring, so you could clearly see the reflection of um, everyone in it, or maybe that's movie magic, I don't know. Um, but uh, there is a great shot of where you see everyone in the council, or at least everyone except Frodo, kind of bickering in the reflection of the ring. And as it's doing it, um, kind of the evil of the ring music starts playing up. The words that the people at the council are actually saying gets muted a little bit. And then we see the ring erupt in flame, which again, this is what the ring wants. It wants to see everyone fighting over it or about what to be done with it. Um, because as long as these peoples are busy fighting amongst themselves, they cannot unite to fight Sauron. Yeah, and I think this is really good because the this kind of links the three individual shots that 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 sort of form this this wider and interesting like uh camera choreography here because at the start of the scene we start with like these like really tight close-ups. So like as you say, this like film noir sort of detective feel and and everyone is kind of every man for himself. Um and um everyone is kind of being shot from just below eye level. So we're getting like a sense of like their like nobility and authority. Um, and as the, the scene progresses, we move out from just like the single man shots to we get like twos and threes, like uh, Legolas um, and his like West Side Story elf gang pals um, are shot in like twos and threes. And then Gimli and his dwarf West Side Story gang pals are shot in twos and threes. And then finally we zoom all the way out, like you say, to see in the ring everybody at once 
months. And, and as that happens, we lose the sense of authority because this is the moment at which this quest is accepted. Um, and now everybody is shot from just above eye level, unless you're the hobbits, and then it's shot far above eye level. Um, but, but suddenly, all of these characters seem quite small in the face of this incredibly daunting quest and in the face of, like, geographically, Mount Doom, which is massive. So, so the camera rises above them and looks down on them, and we as the audience kind of start to realize that after their, like, nobility and their power and their stature has been hyped up through most of the scene, actually, these guys ain't shit. Um, and this is a really horrifying quest for them to go on. And so this this kind of brings me into one of the other things that, that I want to highlight for this scene, which is the really fascinating blocking and set design. Um, and I, like I feel <laughs> I feel compelled to mention that they are all sitting in a ring, like they are sitting in a circle. Um, and like I mean symbolically, like to really like uh, like milk the like ninth grade English uh, level analysis here. Like they are forming as they sit in this council in this this circle at this council. They are fo- like forming the good ring uh, and the unity of races to to kind of sit against the bad ring in Sauron who who hopes for this sort of I wouldn't I wouldn't call it disunity but like this like forced and uh, unproductive and unfree uh unity um so you know yeah they are the ring there um but then there's also uh, far more interestingly to me the fact that this is done outdoors um because it helps to 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 marry this sense of uh like the the autumnal nature of the elves that the elves are dying the elves are you know passing to the west um and their time in middle earth is over with the fact that they still as you pointed out um despite their their the kind of waning of their 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 race still exert a, a really outsized amount of power in the situation so so or the political situation political landscape of middle earth so Elrond can call a council and make everybody sit outside um and there are lots of dead leaves that are blowing across the the ground, and it's not necessarily why I would say like a purpose-built conference center, but nobody bats an eye on it at it because Elrond is top dog here. And if Elrond says we're meeting outside in the fall and you're gonna have to deal with getting hit in the face by like leaves, then then that is exactly what you're gonna do. Elrond is the man in charge. Yeah, it's like uh with all this uh, Zoom and Skype meetings we have, when they demand that you have your camera on for that, it's like, no, I'm in charge. Everyone, camera on. Here we go. Yeah, cruelty. Yeah, uh, can- canceling Elrond for that. That is <laughs> terrible behavior. <laughs> <laughs> we want to take a moment here to talk about the costumes, and I'll make way for Emily here in a second, but this is really a great spot where we get to see all the different like races kind of represented in how they look, but we also get to see Aragorn actually not wearing his, like, you know, road war and rags. Uh, we get to see Boromir in his full, um, you know, glory, for lack of a better word. So I think the costuming in this scene is really exquisite. Sorry, yeah, I didn't use your word. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, it's fine. I've like just flipped open a thesaurus and playing thesaurus bingo with these. Um, yeah, so this is one of my favorite little elements of, of uh, this scene and really of these movies because I know the, the costuming is definitely hyped up a lot, but I feel like it is really not hyped up as much as it ought to be. Um, and so I'm going to kind of go through these in like a very boring listy way. But I, I like as I was writing my notes out for the, this, as I was watching the scene, I was like, there's just so much that it needs needs covered. So so here here we go. Um, so the first one that I feel compelled to talk to talk about is um, is boring. Boromir's outfit, um, because this is also the the costume that he wears for, uh, well, the rest of his time in the the series, bar the extended edition scenes. Um, but it is also um, one of my favorite costumes in 
across any of the films, um, I just think is uh, just to die for um, and really, really well executed. Um, and I've just from the start, I'm going to point out, as I'm going to point out every time we see an instance of this, the embroidery on his costume is just uh, miraculous. It is really, really beautiful. It is like subtle and understated, but also incredibly powerful for like the richness of, of what it's doing. Um, it is lots of like little flowers, um, but they're done in gold stitching. Um, and that is like quite a difficult thing to do generally. Um, but it is, um, it glitters under the sun um, or under the sunlight, I should say. Um, and so you get this kind of like, he's not magical. He doesn't have like that like strong Numenorean vibe that Aragorn has, but there is this kind of like um, magnificence to an opulence to to his character. And it's done in quite like a small and practical way. Um, there is also um, the, the color scheme for him. So he's got the reds and the blacks and the golds. Um, and that is, of course, like the, the like, uh, platonic ideal of a noble color palette. So in those colors, you're getting like the royalty, the nobility, the ancientry. Um, but it's also quite like a modern and chic color palette. Um, and that is played up um, or, or, or like enhanced by the fact that he's got this like brilliant leather surcoat on. Um, and so even though like leather is totally uh, like a normal kind of um, armor um, material and something that like we'd expect, um, it reads in this scene as quite modern and cool looking um, just because of the like really kind of like deft um, combination of the like color and the, the way that it's cut um, and the way that the leather isn't necessarily aged um, in, in the way that like a lot of Aragorn's leather is aged to to look like it's been used. Boromir really does kind of look like he's like walking a Middle Earth fashion show. Um, and the other thing that I'd like to point out, and I will come back to Boromir in a second in relation to some other characters, is that around the collar of his tunic, which is beneath his leather surcoat, he's got gold embroidery um, of laurels. Um, and laurels are really interesting symbolically because, um, and I'm sure most people know this, but um, in ancient Rome, um, laurels were bestowed to people as a sign of like their like um, martial prowess and, and martial valor. Um, and they were usually worn around the head. Um, they were like a, a, like a laurel wreath, a laurel crown. If you've ever seen like a bust of um, Julius Caesar, you will typically see him with the laurels um, around his head. And that is a way of crowning him with his laurels, crowning him with his martial victory, um, and showing that he is someone who really knows his shit. Um, I therefore think it's very interesting that Boromir has his laurels around his throat because it is almost as if he's being strangled by his martial prowess and his martial triumph. Um, and, you know, that may be me reading way too far into it, but it is sort of one of these things that I look at and go, wow, that is a, a really immense amount of character work. Um, displayed through just this one tiny costuming gesture and um just delightful to me <laughs> um and i have to mention because i will be quite hard on the wigs throughout this film series uh, i have to mention one bit where i think the wigs work really well and it's boromir's wig in this scene because he's got this very like lived in look to it like his hair is all kind of like fucked up around the crown of his head but in the way that like it gets fucked up when your hair is that length anyways and you kind of need a haircut like you need it to go short but you also kind of want it to go longer so you can pull it back properly so you end up just like flipping it back and forth lots and he's got that kind of like I look at that and I'm like yes the, this is the stage that I'm at with my hair right now I feel that I see why your hair is screwed up like that what mood um, and that is like one of these kind of very natural looking wigs that <laughs> unfortunately we don't see loads of in this series um but uh boromir gets here um which i think is just delightful <laughs>
Yeah, I have zero eye for wigs, so I am leaving all of that to Emily. I think one thing I'm thinking about now, on top of all that great stuff Emily just said, is what we discussed in our last episode in that a lot of Boromir's look here, the reds and grays, really do evoke Rohan to me, uh, considering how they'll be armored and depicted in the coming films, and knowing that there is a long story or at least a strong connection between Boromir and the Rohirrim, um, it just... I like making that connection now when I see him in his council outfit. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think it is like really key to to note that the other really brilliant bit of this like um, kind of crimson burgundy uh, velvet and the gold embroidery that we see is actually Theoden at, at Helm's Deep. Um, and I will talk loads about that when we get to it because it's another one that's brilliant. But yeah, you're totally right. That is a very close connection. Um, and he does have one connection to Gondor on his person, um, and it is something that I think is slightly overlooked, but is uh, heart-wrenching nonetheless, which is um, his brown leather van braces that he wears uh, have the uh, tree of Gondor, the white tree of Gondor, um, inscribed upon them. Um, and I'm going to like put a cap on talking about the van braces here because we're going to have to come back to them later at a far more like emotionally devastating moment. But if you are watching these scenes, uh, just look out for those van braces around his wrist because like not only are they like really interesting, they're like one of the few bits of brown on him, but they're also like very intricately designed um, and I think deserve more credit than they are given. <laughs> And then it is time to talk about my favorite twink, uh, Legolas. Um, and he's not quite in his like best look here. He's he's not gone full link yet, um, but he will get there. Um, this outfit is actually very, very subtle. Um, he's got this like gorgeous, soft, velveteen, taupe colored poncho cape thing on. Um, and it's not like especially structured. It doesn't look especially pragmatic. Um, it's not particularly flashy, uh, but that combined with like the soft lighting he's got going on and the like airbrush texture makeup makes him look like very delicate and ethereal. Um, he definitely, like we don't know him as like an elven prince at this point, um, nor, nor do I think he, or do we ever know him as an elven prince in these movies, but he definitely has that aura nonetheless in his costuming. Um, and I think like the, I'm going to mention velvet lots and lots and lots here because there is a lot of velvet in these scenes or velveteen in these scenes. Um, but it is one of these things that shows up as something of a class signifier uh, or like a upper echelon of the whatever the like unspoken hierarchy is here. So it is important to note that Legolas has his, his velvet on, um, but he's also got, I'm going to go, I'm going to be like nice about the wigs here. Um, his wigs are some of the ones that like, I think suffer the worst, um, but here he's fine. It's not super intricate. It's just this like very simple, uh, very uh, light and easy breezy uh, braiding that he's got just to pull it away from his face. Um, and I, I think we will talk briefly in the Tolkien, Tolkien book section um, about why maybe Legolas is not in the mood to be particularly ostentatious with his look at this point. Tell me about Gimli now. <laughs> ah, Gimli. Ah, uh, boy. Uh, yeah, so I find it very interesting uh, the way that he is costumed in this scene. Um, I am going to like out and out say that I don't love it. Um, I think it is kind of, so, so the, this is reflective of a change from the book to the film. Um, and I like respect and think it's totally reasonable that they went for making Gimli, um, 
something of uh, like comic relief in the series. I don't necessarily have a problem with that, although I think Legolas may have been the better pull. But nevertheless, and in the books, um, Gimli is like quite like a like a genteel and like well mannered young lad. <laughs> um, like he is very civil. He's very polite. He's very upright. He knows his manners. He behaves well. Um, he is someone who has like um, a strong sense of pride and like himself, his people, and his appearance. Um, and so to see him in this scene dressed in what looks to me like the like Duaro, the like Dwarvish equivalent of fatigues is is like really interesting and striking to me. Um and he doesn't stay that understated the whole way through the film. Like when he when we see the first shot of him with his helmet on, which I actually think is just towards the end of the scene, but there's a better look at it in an upcoming scene. Um, we'll talk a bit more about uh, like the the like dwarven aesthetics and and why I think the helmet is like particularly effective. But here he's just kind of like in like a like a really like forgettable kind of surcoat, and his chainmail looks a bit grotty, and he's got like all of the like leather armor on, and it's all just a bit like dull, and there's not a huge amount to say or do about it, which I guess is fine because like he does have this like incredible character moment with going for the ring with the axe. So maybe his like costumes don't need to like telegraph a huge amount about who he is. But like, I feel like it is one of the few like whiffed moments (laughs) in this scene that they like, don't make him look like the the charming young man that he is. (laughs) Um, Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) I just going to say the best I could come up with is just this general dwarven idea that there was supposed to be somewhat salt of the earth and a little more rugged than the other races, um, which is the best explanation I can make in my head for why he's not in his proper, you know, young lad outfit here. But yeah. um, I think your your points are very like on point, I think. Um, I think it's also like, I think it's a bit playing up because cause they decide to make all the dwarves Scottish, uh, which is, yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> like, whatever. <laughs> like, it's okay. I don't care. Um, but like, um, I think they're kind of going for the like, oh, all Scottish people are tight um, and won't buy nice clothes kind of thing, which is like a funny bit, I guess. Um, but I'm also like, not the right bit. Do a much funnier joke. Put him in a little sailor costume with a lovely little... <laughs> but like as part of this like all right all the dwarves are scottish now and they give him this absolutely mortifying uh ginger wig and beard and horrible stick on eyebrows and i hate it and i'm just gonna say this a million times i hate it so much it looks so disgusting and just like gets the most like viscerally negative reaction out of me every time i have to like think about it for more than a couple minutes because it's like the oh the who's the who's the boy the lad from north of the wall in Game of Thrones, uh, the Icelandic guy. Um, oh, uh, Tormund, Tormund. That's Giants the fan. one. Yeah, he, it's that look. But that guy like definitely seems like I would assume that that's his own hair or something, or like he grew it or whatever. Like John Reese Davis does not look like a ginger. He does not have that like. <laughs> that texture of hair at all. So like seeing a, him as Gimli, I'm like, oh, why have they nerfed this poor man? Um, I, yeah, I like, I don't have like an intellectual reason to hate it. I just think it is gross. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I can definitely see that. And yeah, John Reese davies does not have those features. I mean, he has features that they cast him as a Middle Easterner, which they probably shouldn't have in the Indiana Jones movies, but those are what his features are more evocative of. Yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> 
Um, and I guess now after having done that like dose of negativity, I'm actually kind of excited here to talk about uh, Aragorn's fit because I think this is like really, really clever costuming. Um, and uh, Aragorn in this scene, as, as we've kind of discussed, is not necessarily like at his most confident. Um, he is like outed, I guess, for lack of a better term, as a king, but, like, he's not really selling his kingship here. Um, and his costume is, like, a is, is a really integral part of that, because he's in his blacks and greys, which are, like, quite muted colors, especially in comparison to almost everybody else um, at the council. Um, the only other character who's wearing as much black as, well, not even as much, but who's also wearing black, like, um, Aragorn is, is Boromir, but Boromir's black is, like, very much a statement color like the the leather is shiny and so you see it and your eye is drawn to it and your mind registers a, as Boromir is wearing black and another color the blacks and grays and Aragorn's fit uh, don't really register to you in the same way they're like very much a neutral thing um, and your your eye doesn't think about the color or the lack thereof I guess in, in the same way um, and it's all about kind of blending him or having him kind of settle back into the background um, and giving him that sort of vibe of like he's trying to hide, but he's kind of just missed the mark because everybody around him is in these earthy tones. And so even when he's trying to kind of hide himself and like minimize himself, he's still always kind also kind of sticking out from the fray a bit. Um, and I feel like this for me is is especially played up by the fact that his tunic um, beneath his surcoat is um, chainmail print. Um, and so he has this like, it's this lovely kind of scale, gray scale print along his tunic and and that kind of has like a satiny sheen to it um, and so it evokes this idea of uh like like military regalia or military garb or military like pragmatic wear um without actually being it um which is i think an interesting contrast to boromir who well boromir and gimli of course but boromir more specifically because boromir is wearing his chainmail still um and Aragorn isn't and I think that is one of these little ways in which they set up this this like contrast and conflict between the two characters because they are both in the same place they are both ostensibly on the same side but Boromir is still dressed in not just like his like military regalia but like his protective gear he is not necessarily trusting of the environment that he's in whereas Aragorn is basically in his like jammies <laughs> like he really really trusts Rivendell he doesn't have to think twice about it he can wander about without his uh without his like defensive gear on because he's just so at home and so comfortable here um, and, and those two costuming choices, I think, are really, really fascinating. Um, neither of them can necessarily give up the, like, militarism inherent to their characters, as seen by, like, Aragorn basically wearing, like, chainmail pajamas. Um, but uh, Aragorn is able to kind of slip out of it slightly more, whereas Boromir, it holds to it more more intensely. Um, and I think, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, finish, finish your thought. Um, so I think like this contrast as well is like played up um, really fascinatingly, again, between Boromir and Aragorn because um, Aragorn's surcoat, um, it's like a lovely high neck surcoat um, with like a, a mandarin collar um, is velvet. Um, and so um, he's got the velvet on top. Um, and again, this is like this, this velvet is the signifier of like nobility. He's got this velvet on top. Um, and so he's got this like soft exterior with the like militaristic interior. And you contrast that to Boromir, who's got the leather surcoat and the velvet beneath it. And so it's like Boromir has this more like harder protective exterior and the softer interior buried beneath. And like those two things sit in this obvious kind of contrastic conflict. Yeah, um, I was thinking a little bit about how, um, in, from a meta sense almost, that 
this is the scene where they're going to, uh, you know, drop, you know, explicitly that Aragorn is a Sealdor's heir and that, you know, thrown to the heir of Gondor. And so they basically give him a spit shine for this scene uh, <laughs> so that he looks the part. Um, I can't believe I'm going to quote this for the second time on this podcast, but if you want to be the king of rabbits, you have to wear your floppy ears. Um, <laughs> that's kind of what I saw here. Uh, but also the fact that, like you said, it is kind of more of a formal a formal look, but it has like touches of like military aesthetics to it, like the way it looks like chainmail. It almost speaks to the fact that in the end, Boromir, even though he's destined to be a steward, is still kind of a soldier, whereas Aragorn is going to have to be this king. And at least in the way these kind of stories are made up, a king is both a martial presence and a political presence, um, like a political leader outside of the battlefield, as well as a leader on the battlefield itself. So trying to kind of merge both of those into one look, I think is, um, you know, just a smart touch. And I think part of it is the scene might have played differently if Aragorn was in his like ratty black worn robes or a uh, cloak. Um, and then Legolas is like, this dude's going to be the king one day and everyone's going to be like, that hobo? Um, <laughs> I it just, I think it just kind of, it makes the scene more coherent or rather you don't have to go into all the, you know, the whole all that is gold does not glitter stuff right here. You can basically just have Aragorn wear that kind of kiggly facade, even though he has his own self-doubts about it. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think that is like a really brilliant point about like Boromir not being able to shed his like militarism or like his like martial soldier like behavior ever. Because as we were talking about on the last episode where like there is really it's really difficult to envision a place for Boromir in the post-war world. And it is not, as we look at these two characters now, it is not as hard to envision uh, a place for Aragorn in the post-war world. And like, indeed, it is sort of like preordained in some ways that that he will have this place in the post-war world. But like, you can see that there is this ability, as you say, to like become something beyond the soldier. And Boromir just can't ever shake that. And that is basically to his to his own detriment and to, you know, leads him to his death. And so, as I kind of mentioned, the the velvet velvet as like a class signifier in this scene uh, comes up again with the hobbits. Um, and when we get the the, the beautiful shot of uh, the fellowship lined up, we also get the four hobbits, um, you know, on the second tier. Um, and so that is again this like velvet as a class signifier, at, like at working at Max. So we've got like Frodo, who is uh, the number one of all of the hobbits. He's got his velvet waistcoat on and a velvet suit jacket and what looks like a lovely little lace collar um so importantly the velvet suit jacket and the velvet waistcoat uh, then we've got mary who has a velvet waistcoat and a non-velvet jacket um not a lovely collar sadly um give mary a nice collar um and then we've got pippin who is like the third tier hobbit um and he's got his velvet jacket but no waistcoat and an open collar shirt um, and then lastly, we have Sam. Um, and Sam has a tweed uh, suit jacket and an open collar shirt, no velvet at all. Um, and the top three hobbits, Frodo, Sa uh, Frodo, Mary, and Pippin are all dressed in jewel tones. Frodo's got his lovely maroons. And um, and um, uh, Mary and Pippin have like this this kind of nice like sapphire amethysty mix. Um, and poor Sam is just like in his like standard gray tweed um and that and like also helps to sort of like reinforce um th this kind of hierarchy of the hobbits I guess <laughs> um and I think this is also like one of these things where like um 
it, it, it shows the kind of like more salt of the earth nature of, of Sam because, you know, he is going on an adventure. He's not bringing his finest. Um, and Frodo and Mary and Pippin, who are uh, perhaps a bit more uh, pampered than Sam, uh, still do bring their finest um, or I guess in Pippin's case, as close as he can get to his finest um, because they, they sort of have these like very particular expectations about the world. Um, and, you know, f- you know, good on them, I guess. They, two of them end up becoming like knights and esquires to various kings. Um, so m- maybe they were right, but, you know, uh, Sam is Sam and Sam's wearing his lovely tweed. Uh, and maybe there's like some tweed supremacy necessary. <laughs> Um, and then the very last costume I would like to talk about um, is Auron's. Um, and I, I like feel compelled to bring this up because I am quite hard on this film series for not being especially bold or interesting in its aesthetic choices. Um, and so because I'm that hard, I do need to recognize when they do this well. Um, and they do this very well in the case of Elrond. Um, and Elrond, uh, I love his costume here. I think it's really brilliant. Um, his is the most non-Western inspired costume I think we've seen so far. Um, he kind of looks like um, Toshiro Mifune and I'm trying to I'm, I'm thinking it's like Seven Samurai but that might not be it um, but it's just like this like you know I mean Hugo Weaving is like not as beautiful <laughs> as Toshiro Mifune but like he's definitely got that sort of like um, elder statesman um, like very kind of dignified but also could potentially kick your ass if the neaterized kind of vibe to his costume. Um, And it's also very, very much like, um, I'm going to say like generic Oriental inspired because I, not because I think like, oh, you know, the the Orient is everything to the East of like Iraq or whatever, but because I think there are so many different pulled influences for this costume, it would not be accurate to say it's just Japanese inspired or just Chinese inspired. They pulled very consciously from uh, like Korean uh, outfits. Um, you can especially see that in the sleeves and the way that the the uh, trimming around the hem of Aran sleeves are done. Um, you can see the the Mandarin collar um, and the button design down the front of his um, his like chemise slash tunic thing is more Chinese in orientation. Um, and then his uh, tunic slash wrap is certainly more Japanese and also his uh, wig and his um, circlet design are definitely more Japanese in orientation. Um, so so that's why I'm just saying like generic oriental. I'm not trying to do like really petty old-fashioned orientalism. Um, but this is also all brilliant because he's got these like lovely warm, um, they're not earth tones, but they're not like our like classic um, jewel tones either. He's got like these lovely oranges and these maroons and the, the like quite nice um, lilac for his like chemise. Um, and that is, um, I think, one of the most kind of divergent um, color palettes we've seen so far and really sets him aside um, from all of the other characters while still keeping him in tune with that kind of like potentially earthy, warm color palette. Um, and he is, of course, draped in velvet. It's just this like lovely, sumptuous velvet all over him in that great uh, wrap that he's got on. Um, but there is also this addition of like silk and satin um, in the bands around his, uh, like the very hem of of his sleeves um, and that's the bit that I'm saying looks a bit more Korean to my eye um, and that is also just this like lovely luxury element to what he's wearing and, and again kind of establishes himself as like because he's wearing these like I don't want to call them impractical because they obviously serve a use but they're like if you need to pull out a sword, they are not super practical because they are velvet and satin. Um, it establishes him as someone who 
doesn't necessarily need to be riding to war anymore um, and has kind of moved beyond that. Um, and I just think that whole costume um, and plus his wig, which they fix between the first time we see him and this scene, <laughs> uh, work together to, to have this really, really interesting um, and unique character aesthetic that now that I've like complimented on them, I'm going to say, I wish they had taken that and run with it and really expanded it and had uh, like a more uh, like either Chinese or Japanese or whatever non sort of Anglo take on the elves because I think that could have uh, have had like a really like profoundly interesting impact on like the the like fantasy culture. Yeah, I really have nothing to add to that excellent analysis. My heart's just singing at the Toshiro Mifune reference because he is one of my favorites. I'm actually shocked that Emily was the first one to mention him on this <laughs> podcast before me uh, because I do think we're going to get into a lot of the Kurosawa influences as we progress through the films, especially with the bigger battles. Um, where you can see that they're taking from things like uh, Seven Samurai or Throne of Blood or any of the other, you know, great Kurosawa, Toshiro Mifune uh, mashups. So um, just love that. If you haven't seen any of Mifune's work, uh, you should really, really hunt it down. He might be the greatest actor ever. Um, he's definitely in that conversation. And, you know, the movies I just mentioned, uh, Seven Samurai, Throne of Blood, Rashomon, um, and those are just his samurai films. He has so many more um, that I can't, you know, even begin to list, but you should definitely check him out. What you just heard was the lone instance of the Gondor leitmotif in this film, playing behind Boromir and Aragorn when discussing the state of things. The tune is played on the French horn, which is incredibly fitting since the horn of Gondor is going to be an important aspect of this film's climax. The film could have used this leitmotif at other points in this film. Gandalf went to Minas Tirith not too far back, and sailing past the Argonoth is roughly the fellowship passing into Gondor, and of course, during really any part of Boromir and Boromir's death in this movie. I really like the restraint shown here for a couple reasons, though. Most simply, we have two more films that will heavily focus on Gondor, so there's no need to burn all your musical themes in full right away. But more importantly, it just really makes this moment stick out even more. Boromir's presence sticks out. Gondor is the lone shield of men against Mordor, the isolation and desperation they must be feeling. All of that is captured by the singular instrument playing this singular tune. And I'll admit this is probably a stretch, but in the books, Boromir blows his horn as the Fellowship sets out against Elrond's protests about maintaining a low profile. Boromir will not set out as a thief in the night, perhaps ironic because he does try to steal something in the end, so he blows his horn. I don't think this score moment has any thematic ties to uh, that uh, horn blowing of Boromir in the books, but I do like how it allows the horn of Gondor to be rung as the fellowship is formed. 
And there are a couple other leitmotifs that factor into the scene, and it's actually starting to pay off some of those leitmotifs where we hear them swell or intermix with other themes. Uh, one that uh, p- crops up here is the Evil of the Ring uh, theme that we mentioned earlier, that it kind of starts drowning out the actual dialogue when the entire council erupts into argument. And then when uh, Sam rushes in uh, to join the Fellowship, we hear Concerning Hobbits uh, start to kick in following the Fellowship theme. And then that Concerning Hobbits theme swells when Merry and Pippin also emerge to join the Fellowship. And the Fellowship of theme, of course. We've heard parts of the Fellowship theme up to this point, but never more than a bar or two, bar or two at the time in the theatrical edition. When Gandalf rides for Isengard and when Aragorn leads the hobbits from Bree, we get parts of the Fellowship theme, but in this scene is where we start getting the musical piece in full. This one is played a bit more subdued so that the character's dialogue can pop, but when we get to our next episode, it's a whole goddamn march as the ring heads south. Um, One interesting note that I discovered uh, doing some research on this theme is that the first three notes are basically meant to be there and back again, like dun, dun, dun. Um, and you know, I'm tone deaf, so I apologize if that's not, uh, you know, well received over this podcast, but um, it's supposed to be, you have a note, you play a second note, and then we return to that first note to kind of symbolize there and back again, or how the road or the story goes ever on uh, in a loop or in a circle. So I really like that uh, bit. And, you know, we mentioned this earlier as well, but um, in the extended edition of the Fellowship of the Ring, we do get the Fellowship theme play much earlier. It actually plays over the title card when Bilbo is working in Bag End. That scene is not in the theatrical edition. And when we get the title card for Fellowship, uh, it's set to Concerning Hobbits and Frodo Under a Tree. So um, I do like how for the theatrical edition, they kind of held back and kind of like hinted at the Fellowship theme, and then really allowed it to play in full when the Fellowship forms and then sets out in the next episode. Yeah, and I think this is one of these really brilliant moments where, um, I I think we talked about this at the very, very beginning of the podcast and maybe like episode one or two, where this is a film where, um, well, a film series where there isn't a huge amount of silence going on, and so the silence is all the more poignant. But, but, but the the moments in which the music is going is also in its way uh, all the more poignant. And this to me kind of registers as like, um, uh, so, so in, in musicals, um, you get like the, the kind of, um, the last song before you go to intermission is like the, I can't remember the exact technical term, but it's like the 11 o'clock blowout. Um, and it is, a like a real showstopper of a song. Um, and it kind of, works overtime to make sure that the audience actually comes back after the intermission and um, so that you don't lose half your theater. Um, and the fellowship theme going here is very, very much that for me is the big showstopper moment where it is like not pleading with the audience to come back because this is not a movie that like ever needs to plead with its audience to do anything is a is announcing to the audience this is how fucking sick the next hour and a half of this movie is going to be. And if you turn off now and if you go away now, look at what you're going to miss. Um, and it is just a really loud and bright and brilliant way of doing that. All right, 
we'll hop into our token token book a recap to wrap up this episode. And I want to start talking about Bilbo because specifically there is a quote from Bilbo uh, from the book that I really like in this portion. Um, he says, do adventures ever have an end? I suppose not. Someone else always has to carry on the story. Well, it can't be helped, I wonder. And I love this quote mostly because it kind of goes back to the themes we've been harping on throughout this podcast about a lot of this Lord of the Rings story is it's a story about stories and the fact that the story goes ever on, just like the road goes ever on. Um, it's kind of infinite in that way. And one thing we'll see later on, especially near the end of Return of the King, is Bilbo's kind of handing off his story to Frodo. And then when Frodo's done writing his part, he hands it off to Sam. And then it just theoretically continues on and on and on from there. So I really like that part. And Bilbo is also a good way to segue into the context of everyone being in Rivendell and at this council <laughs> scene is very different. Um, we, I think we mentioned it earlier that the film basically kind of implies that Elrond and Gandalf called these people here to Rivendell um, to you know debate what is to be done with this ring as opposed to what happened in the books where various people, they all still kind of come here, um, but they're kind of there to report their own specific news from their corner of their world. And it just so happens that we have this perfect confluence of men and elves and dwarves um, that's able to form this fellowship and move on. And amongst them is Bilbo Baggins, who's actually present in the council scene. And he even volunteers to take the ring before Frodo does. Um, but they basically tell Bilbo his time with the ring has passed. His story is kind of over, which kind of helps uh, go back to that quote I opened up this segment with. Yeah. And, and again, I think I mentioned this briefly before, but like, um, Bilbo knows so many of the people who show up at this council, um, just through his like various advent. Well, I say various as one adventure, um, as chronicled in the Hobbit. Um, and so he exerts a tremendous amount of like grandfatherly energy over them. Um, but the one that I think is the funniest to me is, um, that he has, uh, an ongoing relationship with the elves of Mirkwood, um, because it was Thranduil of the Woodland Realm who named him elf friend, not Elrond. Um, and so having Legolas, who is Thranduil's son, um, come riding up uh, is must have been like a real blast from the past. Um, but I also think it's very funny to me the reason that um, uh, Legolas is there at all. Um, and this is not dealt with in the movie. So if you're like hearing this and you're like, where the hell did, were those lines? Uh, they're not in the movie. So don't worry, you haven't missed anything. Um, but um, I mentioned um, at the very, very start of this podcast, um, many, many weeks ago now, um, that uh, after Gandalf... Uh, watches Bilbo disappear on his 111st birthday. Um, he, Gandalf, um, goes off to seek more information about the ring. And one of the ways he does this is he goes to seek the creature Gollum. Um, and it takes him nine bloody years to do that. Um, and when he finally does that, um, when he and Aragorn actually succeed in doing that, they leave Gollum in the care of um of uh Thranduil um and the elves the Sindar elves of the or sorry the S Sylvan elves of the woodland realm in Mirkwood because the prison in Mirkwood is meant to be um 
mostly inescapable. Um, why Gandalf still thinks this, given that Bilbo escaped from it, uh, Lord only knows, but nevertheless, they leave Gollum there. Um, and Gollum does actually stay in that cell for, for uh, a decent amount of time until the Sylvan elves uh, lose him, uh, let Gollum basically walk out the front door, um, and they lose this top-tier prisoner. Um, and so it's Legolas that is sent to Rivendell <laughs> to report the bad news that they've had a prison break. Um, and so when Legolas shows up, he is coming basically with his tail between his legs um, because he and his family and his people have fucked up and now have to answer to the big boss, um, the elves of Rivendell, the high elves of Rivendell, um, and is probably not feeling all that great about what's going on there. Um, And which is why I say he's probably trying to not look especially ostentatious because he's probably not wanting people to remember that he exists. (laughs) That, that's really funny to me. And this is a joke for maybe me and two of our listeners, but I can't believe Emily also beat me to the punch on saying the words big boss on this podcast <laughs> first, just because big boss is one of the primary protagonists of the Metal Gear Solid series, which I also podcast about. Um, but I I can't really blame the elves of Mirkwood because if you send someone with Orlando Bloom's face to me to apologize, I'd be like, yep, absolutely. No yep. problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally fine. <laughs> yeah, no, it's totally true. Um, and they do sound like such a lovely diplomat. And, and in the books, he, like, Legolas is very different, obvious, not obviously, but Legolas is, like, notably different to the Legolas of the films. He's, like, quite a cheerful fellow. Like, he does a lot of singing. He scares quite easily. There's a lovely bit in Fangorn uh, where he is absolutely properly freaking out about uh, what he thinks are, like, all of the eyes looking at him in Fangorn. Um, and him and Gimli uh, are chatting about it. Um, or more accurately, Gimli's kind of trying to talk him off the ledge. Um, and uh, Legolas is like, I would love to see Fangorn when it is beautiful again. Um, and he and Gimli kind of make a pact to go see Fangorn and to see the Deep and Coombe um, in behind Helm's Deep when the war is over. Um, and we'll get into that in Legolas's character episode. But he is just this lovely, cheerful fellow. And so sending him is definitely like a smart move because it's hard to not be totally enamored with him. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what Gimli was up to beforehand, too, or at least what his pretense was for coming to the Council of Elrond, knowing that we have a full episode on him coming up soon? Yeah, so I don't want to give too much of it away, um, but I do want to talk briefly about someone that I mentioned um, slightly earlier in this episode, which is uh, Gloin, uh, Gimli's father, um, and fans of The Hobbit, uh, whoever you are, if you exist, um, just kidding, sorry, loads of people like The Hobbit, I'm just being a dick for no reason, um, will remember Gloin as one of the uh, merry band of dwarves who goes off with Thorin Oakenshield and Bilbo Baggins to uh, take back the Lonely Mountain, to smite Smog, uh, to help... Uh, uh, well, what's his name? Bard the Bowman, uh, take back a Dale. Um, and he is just a, the, this kind of like stalwart character of, uh, not the legendarium because the dwarves don't really feature in the Silmarillion so much, but like of this kind of half of the legendarium, um, and is kind of like this lovely anchor point besides Bilbo, um, and besides Elrond and Gandalf, this lovely anchor point to the past and really showing that, uh, you know, the past doesn't necessarily, um, uh, disappear just because uh, you either don't know about it or, or, or stop talking about it. Um, so lovely that Gloin shows up. He gets absolutely no play in the film, but that's totally fine. Um, Gimli um, and Gloin, though, come to Rivendell um, because Sauron, who, um, as you mentioned in your, uh, <laughs> your brief history of time, brief history of Sauron, um, 
was uh, ha- has a relationship, a, a sort of strained relationship to the dwarves through their mutual creator, who is the Vala Aule. Um, and uh, the dwarves were created by Aule, um, and uh, Sauron was at one point, um, when he was Myron, uh, one of the Maiar to Aule. Um, and uh, Sauron, uh, immediately before uh, the Council of Balrond, I say immediately, but we're using this in like months and years terms, um, comes to the dwarves with... Uh, uh, like a contract or an offer of alliance um, and a whole bunch of promises and gifts that he says that he will give them if the dwarves ally with him. Um, and Gloin and uh, and and Gimli as his son um, on behalf of Thorin's people who dwell in the Arid Luin um, come to Rivendell to narc on Sauron, uh, which rocks. Uh, they're, they're basically coming to the elves to be like, look, Sauron offered this us this. What can you offer us that's better? We don't like Sauron um, and we don't want to work with him, but we also think you guys are all fucking fools. So let's see if we can negotiate this. Um, and they show up there to have that negotiation um, and end up uh, proffering up uh, as as a tribute uh, one of the loveliest sweet dwarves they could have possibly done. Uh, and he ends up just being one of the most important members of the fellowship, which is delightful. Yeah, and we'll probably save it for that Gimli episode, but this is also in the books where we really start getting hints about something foul has gone down at Moria or Kazatum in the dwarfish language. So uh, they, we we will start building up to Moria in the films in our next episode uh, when the ring goes south. Um, but here in the council scene in the books is where we kind of hear about what fate befell um, Balin, who tried to reopen Moria, and then also kind of what happened to Moria long ago that caused it to be abandoned in the first place. But I think we're probably getting ahead of ourselves because we're going to be in Moria and talking Gimli very concretely within a couple weeks. Yes, and it will be a very exciting return to my fuck Gandalf, he's such a dick, uh, song and dance. (laughs) I can't think of a better way to end this episode. So (laughs) that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycapmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and the other projects I've been working on. And Manuclear Bomb, hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid and talking Big Boss over at Podcasts on Frontiers. And I've been Emily, and you can find me at any point for a chat over on Twitter at JRRTweeting. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. short sword that Bilbo discovered it at a, in a troll horde on the journey to air blah 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 I'm the <laughs> <Sorry. laughs>